Toy Talmadge Caldwell was born November 13, 1947, in Spartanburg, South Carolina. He played basketball and football in school with his buddies George McCorkle, Jerry Eubanks, and Doug Gray. When they weren't playing ball, they were always palling around and listening to music. In 1966, they decided to form a band of their own, and Toy Factory was born. They had a lot of fun with it, incorporating all the music they liked listening to into their sound, from jazz and blues to bluegrass, country, and rock and roll. Heck, Jerry even played his flute sometimes. Toy's brother Tommy played in the band too. It was the late 60s though, turbulent times in the US, and later that same year, Toy enlisted in the Marine Corps. He traveled to the other side of the state for boot camp at Paris Island and then shipped out to Vietnam. George, Doug, and Tommy followed him there, with all four of them doing at least one tour of duty. When their service was up, they all found themselves back in Spartanburg and decided to get the band back together. They added Paul Riddle on drums and started playing gigs around town. Their popularity grew, and they even got to open for the Allman Brothers when they were in town. They went to play a gig in Macon, Georgia, and while they were there, decided to record a demo tape at Capricorn Studios, which was the Almonds label. The owners of Capricorn, brothers Phil and Alan Walden and Frank Fenter, liked what they heard and signed them on the spot. In 1973, they released their self-titled debut album, which went gold. To support it, they began touring relentlessly, playing up to 300 shows a year, their sound caught the ear of fellow North Carolinian, although North Carolinian, Charlie Daniels. Daniels liked their sound and joined them on their second album, A New Life, which also went gold. By 1976, the band had released five straight gold-selling albums and got their first Grammy nomination. In 1977, their sixth album, Carolina Dreams, went platinum in less than a year. The album featured their biggest hit, Heard It in a Love Song, which made it to number 14 on the U.S. charts and number 5 in Canada. That year, they also played at Jimmy Carter's presidential inauguration. Toy Caldwell and his friends were riding high. Their 1978 seventh album was called Together Forever, and it sure seemed like they would be. The band's eighth album was a greatest hits album, released just over five years after their debut album, a pretty amazing feat. Despite their success, Capricorn ended up in bankruptcy. The band moved over to Warner Brothers, where they released their ninth album, Running Like the Wind, and their tenth, aptly named Tenth. All of a sudden, their world came crashing down when, on March 28, 1980, Toy and Tommy's younger brother, Tim, was killed in a car accident. Just over three weeks later, Tommy was in an accident himself. He died six days after that. The band continued to tour and to record, but the magic that catapulted them to stardom was gone. They found it hard to write. On their 1983 album, Greetings from South Carolina, Toy only wrote three of the songs. After Greetings, Toy and George McCorkle left the band. Toy Caldwell passed away in 1993 at just 45 years old. George would pass away in 2007. Doug and Jerry kept the band going though 
adding new members, and pushing forward. They have recorded 10 more albums, and while Jerry retired in 1996, Doug Gray plays and tours to this day. They've often been considered one of the pioneering bands in the genre we now call Southern Rock, and have been cited as major influences of bands like Alabama and artists like Travis Tritt. From the start, though, they were just playing what they loved, borrowing from the amazing diversity of styles found in the upcountry of South Carolina. In fact, all you have to do is listen to their debut self-titled album to hear the Piedmont blues, jazz, country, bluegrass, and rock and roll. You'll even hear Jerry play his flute. You won't find this album by searching for Toy Factory, though. You see, before they recorded their demo tape for Capricorn, they decided they needed a new name. Here, the story shifts a bit to another man who actually didn't know any of the band members at all. This man was born blind, and at nine years old, his mother sent him to boarding school at the Cedar Springs School for the Blind and Deaf in Spartanburg. It was there that he found out he had perfect pitch and was extremely well-suited to be a piano tuner. He, in fact, went on to a successful career in this field. In the early 70s, he had rented a warehouse space in Spartanburg to tune pianos in. When he moved out, Toy Factory moved in to use it as a practice space. It was in that room that they debated their new name. They thought and thought, but couldn't come up with anything. Then one of them, who had the keys to the building, noticed that the last tenant, the blind piano tuner, still had his name on the keychain. They decided to use his name for the band, which settled the debate in the moment and has caused confusion ever since. But now you know. You know the story of how they became the Marshall Tucker Band. I traveled the country over, stopped in each and every time. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of American Anthology. This is your host, Mike Harding, and it is a pleasure to be with you today. I'm coming to you this time once again from the beautiful state of South Carolina. Over the last few weeks, I've done some pretty great traveling through the inland and upcountry parts of the state. Not only have I learned a lot of history and found some great stories to tell you today, but I've also had some wonderful times in big cities and small towns and hiking through the woods and visiting some of the most beautiful waterfalls I've ever seen. To see photos of my journey or to read more about me, or traveling in South Carolina, visit my website, www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles, the number two, gobeforeisleep.com. For the whole story, be sure you find me on Facebook, on Twitter at MilesToGoTweet, and on Instagram at MilesToGoBeforeIsleep, all using the number two for me and you. Past podcasts, have featured the music of up-and-coming musicians on their way to fame and fortune. Today, though, it is a real privilege to feature the music of a true living legend who hails from Ware Place, South Carolina. Dr. Mac Arnold is a legendary Piedmont blues man who I had the honor to meet last week at a fundraiser for Next Charter School in Greenville. Mac is a really wonderful guy 
and it was great to talk with him and share a laugh. He let me record him live at the fundraiser, which took place at 13 Stripes Brewery in Taylor. It's so awesome to be able to share his music with you today. I'll also give a shout out to his amazing band, Plate Full of Blues. You should definitely check out his music on iTunes, and to find out more, check out his website at macarnold.com. This week, I have a lot more great stories for you from the Palmetto State. So without further ado, let's get right into this episode of American Anthology. This song, we wrote this song for South and North Carolinians. This song is entitled, Cackalacky Twain. Joseph Jefferson Jackson was born with his father's unusually long arms in rural Pickens County, South Carolina, sometime in the late 1880s. Soon thereafter, his father moved the family to nearby Greenville, where he took a job at a textile factory there called Brandon Mill. Joe would be the oldest of eight children in his family, and in that era, he was expected to pitch in more than he would be today. When he was around six or seven, He also went to work at Brandon Mill. He never spent a day in school. At a young age, he discovered that his long arms helped him throw balls really well. And when he picked up a baseball bat, they helped him destroy the ball. By the time he was just 13, Joe had earned a spot on the men's team at Brandon Mill. Baseball was a source of enormous pride in the mill towns. And Joe was good. He was a great pitcher an incredible outfielder, and one heck of a hitter. In fact, he hit so many home runs in the Mill League that they earned a special nickname, Saturday Specials. In 1908, when Joe was about 19, Greenville got its very own Class D team in the Carolina Association, the Greenville Spinners. They signed him and paid him $75 a month, $30 more than he made at the Mill. Since he had never learned to read or write, he had to sign his contract with an X. Joe pitched for the spinners, played center field, and led the league with a .346 batting average. He took some of his new earnings and bought a brand new pair of baseball shoes, probably the first new pair of shoes he had ever owned. Not knowing any better, he wore them in his next game, a doubleheader. By the second game, His feet were killing him in his new shoes. Coming up to bat, he couldn't stand the thought of wearing these painful shoes and running the bases. So, he took them off. Drilling the ball for a triple, he rounded the bases in his stocking feet. A reporter from the Greenville News, highly amused at seeing this, leaned in and shouted, Look at that shoeless son of a bitch go! Although this was the one and only time he played without shoes, from that day on, he would always be known as Shoeless Joe Jackson. In July 1908, he married Katie Wynn, and a month later, Connie Mack, the manager of the Philadelphia Athletics, bought his contract from the Spinners. Joe had never been out of South Carolina, so his Greenville manager rode the train north with him. Joe found the big city intimidating, 
and three days later, got on a train right back to Greenville. Mac coaxed him back to Philly, but he never really fit in there. Plus, his teammates were constantly teasing him for his country ways. For the next two years, Joe bounced between Greenville, Philadelphia, and the minor leagues in Savannah and New Orleans. He did great in the minors, but by 1910, Mac realized that despite his natural talent, Joe and Philadelphia were never going to be a good match. Joe was traded to the Cleveland Naps. The Naps had quite a few Southerners on their team, and Cleveland wasn't nearly as big as Philadelphia. Joe fit in better there and finished off the last month of the 1910 season batting 387. He helped the Naps to a third-place finish and earned a permanent place on their roster. 1911 was Shoeless Joe Jackson's first full year in the majors, and it was a good one. He set Cleveland records for hits and outfield assists. He had 233 hits, 45 doubles, 19 triples, and batted a whopping 408, a single-season record which still stands over 100 years later in Cleveland. Unfortunately for Joe, he was playing at the same time as the great Ty Cobb, so his 408 average was only good for second place in the league. He would come in second in batting average to Cobb for the next two seasons, but in 1913, he led the league in hits, doubles, and slugging percentage. In 1914, Joe broke his leg and missed 35 games that season. He still managed to bat 338, but the speed-dependent categories of stolen bases and extra base hits definitely suffered due to his injury. That winter, in an unusual turn, Joe headlined a vaudeville act. He toured the South with a group of beautiful women called Joe Jackson's Baseball Girls. Joe showed the crowd his favorite bat, which he called Black Betsy, and demonstrated his famous swing. The show was a semi-biographical account of his rise from the cotton mills to the big leagues. There was singing and dancing. I'm sure it was quite a show. Joe thought it was quite a show, too. So much so that he didn't report for spring training. Between this and rumors that he was spending a little too much time with one of the baseball girls, his wife Katie filed for divorce. When Joe was served with these papers... He got on a train that night back to Greenville, made up with his wife, and then reported for practice the next day. Cleveland changed their name from the Naps to the Indians that year, but owner Charles Summers found the organization teetering on bankruptcy. To keep the team afloat, he needed to either trade Joe or shortstop Ray Chapman. Between his poor performance the preceding season and his off-season antics, Summers chose Joe and put him on the market. My hometown Washington Nationals made a bid for him, and oh how Joe's future and the future of Major League Baseball might have changed had their offer been accepted. But Summers held out for more. And he got it. Charles Comiskey, owner of the Chicago White Sox, wanted Joe badly and decided he would outbid anyone to get him. On August 21, 1915, he and Summers reached a deal. The deal was the most expensive in baseball history to that point, and Joe was on his way to Chicago. As we've already heard, Joe was always slow to adjust, and he hit poorly for the last six weeks of the season for the Sox. 
The following year, though, 1916, he batted 341 and led the league in extra base hits and total bases. The White Sox finished second that year. It seemed like Joe had gotten his groove back. In 1917, though, Joe injured his ankle in spring training, which led to a bad year for him. The Sox, however, won 101 games and the American League pennant. In the World Series, Joe batted 304, and the White Sox won four games to two over the New York Giants. It was the last time the Sox would win the World Series for almost nine decades. By 1918, the United States was fully embroiled in World War I. Joe was drafted, but chose war work over enlistment. Instead of going to Europe, he went to Delaware, where he built battleships and played baseball for the Bethlehem Steel League. The press was highly critical of Joe for avoiding the war, as was White Sox owner Charles Comiskey. By the time the 1919 season opened, though, the war was over, and Joe was back with the White Sox. He batted 351 that year, with 181 hits and 96 runs batted in. The White Sox won the American League pennant, and were heavily favored as they entered the then best of nine World Series against the Cincinnati Reds. Joe batted 375 in the series and hit the only home run. He set a World Series record with 12 hits, a record which stood until 1964 and didn't commit a single error. Despite this, the Reds won the series 5-3. In 1920, Joe was right back on top of his game, he batted 382, third in the league, had 20 triples, and 121 runs batted in. On September 28th, though, newspapers published allegations that Joe and seven of his teammates had conspired to throw the World Series the previous year. All eight were immediately suspended, and Joe went that day to testify before the grand jury. In a fictionalized account, as Jackson left the courthouse that day, a small boy stepped out and looked up at him, stating simply, Say it ain't so, Joe. While this exchange likely never actually happened, it is a sentiment that thousands of kids and adults across the country no doubt felt that day. Not Shoeless Joe. Not the kid who started in the middle league and hit the ball harder than anyone. Not you, Joe. Not you. Joe said there was no truth to these allegations, that he had played no part in the scandal. He would maintain his innocence until the day he died. While all eight were acquitted in a jury trial, newly appointed commissioner of baseball, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, himself a federal judge, wanted to send a message that cheating would not be tolerated. He expelled all eight from baseball for life. Joe went on to play for some small southern leagues and run a successful pool room and dry cleaning business in Savannah. In 1933, he and his wife moved home to Greenville, where he opened a restaurant and liquor store. He also spent a lot of time coaching baseball to Greenville's kids. Many of these kids were surprised later in life to learn that Mr. Joe, who taught them to hit and owned the liquor store, was actually the great shoeless Joe Jackson. While his expulsion would, and does, prevent him from being inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, in 1951, the Cleveland Indians inducted him into their Hall of Fame. Just a few months later, 
on December 5th, 1951. Joe died of a heart attack at home and was buried at Woodlawn Memorial Park in Greenville. He was 63. He didn't have any weaknesses. He gave me more trouble than anyone else. The great pitcher Walter Johnson, featured in episode one of this podcast, once said of Joe Jackson. Ted Williams called Joe perhaps the greatest hitter ever. Babe Ruth said on more than one occasion that he copied his swing from Joe Jackson's, who did it better than anyone. Everyone who ever played against Joe said the ball just sounded different coming off of his bat. Although he played over 100 years ago, Joe still has the third highest batting average of all time, behind his old nemesis Ty Cobb and the great Roger Hornsby. No one may ever know exactly what role, if any, Joe played in the Black Sox scandal of 1919. He certainly outperformed any other player from either team in the series. I've read a lot of different accounts, both for and against Joe, and I can't come to a fair conclusion either way. I wasn't there. But Joe knew. One way or the other, Joe knew. If there is a lesson to be learned from this story, let it be this. Plenty of people have money, but only a certain percentage of people can say they won a World Series, or a Super Bowl, or a science fair, or a spelling bee. Whatever it is that you do, do the best you can at it. Win honestly and lose honestly. Money gets spent, but your conscience will be right there with you until the end. And in the end, only you, like Joe, will know the truth. It all started over a bus. Article 11, Section 7 of the 1895 Constitution of South Carolina states, quote, Separate schools shall be provided for children of the white and colored races, and no child of either race shall ever be permitted to attend a school provided for children of the other race, end quote. This was the law in South Carolina. It was reinforced in 1896 by the Supreme Court's ruling in the case of Plessy v. Ferguson, which stated that as long as equal facilities were provided for both races, separation by race was not unconstitutional. Now, let's jump ahead to the bus, because it all started over a bus. In 1947, in Clarendon County, South Carolina, black children walked to school, some as far as eight miles each way. White students in Clarendon County rode the bus. Harry and Eliza Briggs asked the local superintendent of schools, R.M. Elliott, for a bus. Just one for the kids who lived the furthest away. After all, white students in Clarendon County had 33 buses. Surely black students could get one. Elliott disagreed and turned them down. He told them black people in the county didn't pay enough taxes to get a bus and it would be unfair to ask white taxpayers to fund a bus for black children. In 1949, the NAACP agreed to fund a case asking for equal opportunities in Clarendon County. Future Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, 
who had founded the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund in 1940, and who had successfully argued civil rights cases in the Supreme Court before, would represent them. A petition was drafted asking for equal opportunities by the Reverend Joseph Armstrong Delane and noted South Carolina civil rights advocate Majeska Monteith. A hundred Clarendon County residents signed the petition. Named first in the suit, Harry and Eliza Briggs were the main named plaintiff. Superintendent Elliott was the defendant. Thurgood Marshall took the case before Judge Julius Waring. An FDR appointee born in Charleston, Judge Waring recommended the case be expanded to ask not for equalization, but desegregation. He wanted Marshall to ask that segregation be declared unconstitutional. Marshall agreed. At the beginning of the trial, the defendants admitted, quote, the educational facilities, equipment, curricula, and opportunities afforded in school district number 22 for colored pupils are not substantially equal to those afforded for white pupils, end quote. Despite this admission, the three-judge panel predictably voted two to one that segregation was lawful. In his dissent, Waring wrote, quote, segregation is, per se, inequality, end quote. The panel did, however, issue an injunction to equalize the uncontested inferiority of the black schools. In 1952, Briggs v. Elliott was heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. They returned the case to South Carolina courts because Clarendon County school officials had submitted a report detailing the county's progress towards equalization. This was not untrue. In 1951, South Carolina instituted its first sales tax of 3%, which raised $124 million to be put towards state schools. Furthermore, the state borrowed against future sales tax revenue to begin work immediately. 60% of the money went to building new schools for black students. Clarendon County even bought them a bus. A lower court agreed that progress had been made. Marshall argued that segregation was fundamentally unequal. He appealed it back to the U.S. Supreme Court in May. When he did, he consolidated it with five other cases calling for school desegregation. The other cases came from Virginia, Delaware, my hometown of Washington, D.C., and Topeka, Kansas. While Briggs v. Elliott was argued first, the consolidated case took its name from the Topeka case, Brown versus the Board of Education. A unanimous decision was reached by the court in 1954. The decision overturned Plessy v. Ferguson on the grounds that it violated the Equal Protection Clause granted by the 14th Amendment. School segregation on the basis of race was deemed unconstitutional. I wish I could tell you that this decision was well received in South Carolina, but it was not. Reverend Delane, who had drafted the original petition, was fired from his teaching job, as was his wife. His church was burned to the ground, and he left the state for New York. Harry and Eliza Briggs also lost their jobs. Harry had to move to Florida to find work, and they eventually moved with their children to New York as well. Judge Waring retired from the bench and also moved to New York in 1952. As horrible as those stories are, though, what is worse is that the decision had no effect on South Carolina schools. After all, 
the state had just spent a huge amount of money to build new schools for black students. Across the entire state, black students still went to black schools and white students still went to white schools. In 1960, parents from Clarendon County sued once again in an attempt to end school segregation. The case stalled in the courts. Finally, in 1963, nine years after the Brown decision, in the case of Millicent Brown versus the Charleston County School Board District 20, the courts ordered that the 11 black students named in the case be admitted to the white schools. Unfortunately, the ruling was made two weeks before the school term began in September, so only the 11 students named in the case were admitted that year. Despite this ruling, desegregation remained the exception, not the rule in South Carolina, until 1970, when Richard Nixon ordered an immediate end to segregation. 1970. That's the year before my older brother was born. When you hear people make statements about the Civil War ending in 1865 and the 14th Amendment, which passed in 1868, I want you to remember Briggs v. Elliott. Remember Brown versus the Board of Education. Millicent Brown versus the Charleston County School Board. And that year, 1970. And to think, it all started over a bus. James Brown, soul brother number one, Mr. Dynamite, the hardest working man in show business, the godfather of soul, was born dead in a wooden shack in rural Barnwell County, South Carolina on May 3, 1933. If it weren't for the quick reaction of his aunt, who revived him, music as we know it might be very different today. James grew up in a brothel run by his aunt Honey, just across the border in Augusta, Georgia. He liked boxing and baseball and, of course, music. He loved the big bands and R&B, and especially Louis Jordan, king of the jukebox, a favorite of mine as well. He dropped out of school in the sixth grade and began to hustle full-time. He shined shoes and sang and danced for spare change. At 13, he formed his first band, the Cremona Trio. In 1949, he broke into a car and ended up in jail. While imprisoned, James formed a gospel choir with some of his fellow inmates. One day, Bobby Bird and his gospel band were performing at the prison. Bobby met and liked James and would eventually sponsor his release from jail. James and Bobby started a band of their own, calling themselves either the Avons or the Gospel Starlighters depending on where they performed. They got a break when they started opening for the great Little Richard. Richard got his big break with the release of Tutti Frutti in 1955, a song you really should Google the original lyrics to if you want a better understanding of the difference between what was being sung and what was being recorded at the time. But when Little Richard's career took off, James Brown took over his local gigs. These crowds wanted Little Richard, so James Brown learned real fast he was going to have to up his game. And he did. And soon the crowds were shouting his name instead. 
To match this new intensity, they changed their name to The Flames, and then The Famous Flames. In 1955, in the basement of Macon's WIBB radio, The Flames recorded what would be their first hit, a song that has sold over a million copies, Please, Please, Please. WIBB DJ Hamp Swain put it on the air, and when Ralph Bass, who worked for King Records Federal label out of Cincinnati, heard it, he felt he had to have it. He brought James and his band to Cincinnati, where they recorded a better version of the song, and then played the song for King owner Sid Nathan. Nathan hated it and threatened to fire Bass over it. Bass persisted, and finally, Nathan decided to release it, just to prove how bad it was. He had to eat his words, though, because Please, Please, Please went to number five on the national R&B charts. While Sid was wrong about that song, he was right about the sound. The music James Brown and his band were playing wasn't hip enough. It was out of touch with the mainstream and what was selling at the time. Nine follow-ups to Please, Please, Please over the next two and a half years flopped. In the summer of 1958, they recorded the love ballad, Try Me, in New York. This song was much more in step with the late 50s popular music, and it went to number one on the R&B charts, and even made the pop top 50. Their next hit came on the sly. They were doing a thing called the mashed potato at their live shows, and people seemed to really like it. But Sid Nathan wasn't having any of it. James went to an old friend, who ran Miami's tiny Dade label, and they released the song under his drummer's name as Nat Kendrick and the Swans. Do the Mashed Potato went to number five on the R&B charts and started a national craze. In 1960, they did a cover of an old Five Royals song called Think. While this is not considered by most to be the first true funk song, it certainly takes an interesting step in that direction. In 1962, Brown wanted to record a live album at the Apollo Theater. Again, Sid said no, and again, James persisted. He booked a remote recording truck himself and went ahead with his plan. His Live at the Apollo album would go on to be the number two selling album in the country and stay on the pop charts for 14 months. Later that year, he released Prisoner of Love, his first song to break the pop charts top 20. Brown found himself constantly fighting with Sid Nathan, and he stopped recording for King Records. He recorded on other labels, but lawsuits kept those albums from being released. While he wasn't recording, he continued to tour furiously, wearing flamboyant outfits and showing off crazy dance moves. Wherever he went, the crowds loved to watch James Brown perform. In 1964, fellow Carolinians, although from the North, Melvin and Maceo Parker joined the band. Finally, in 1965, Sid and James reached an agreement, giving Brown artistic control. Taking this and running with it, they recorded the song Papa's Got a Brand New Bag in less than an hour. This song was a totally new sound. It really was unlike anything anyone had heard before. It won James Brown his first Grammy for Best R&B Song. With it, they released an old song, I Got You, which most of us think of as I Feel Good. With the success of these songs, 1966 was a very good year for James Brown. 
He played shows in London and Paris. He played Madison Square Garden and appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show. He even went to the White House, where he met with Vice President Hubert Humphrey to discuss a national campaign based around his song, Don't Be a Dropout. In 1967, he added a string section and released the song, Cold Sweat. Musically complex, this song was another example of the innovation of James Brown. 1968 was a hard year for America and for James Brown. King Records sold twice in two months. The assassinations of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy shook the country. The day after King was shot, Brown was scheduled to play the Boston Garden. After meeting with Mayor Kevin White, they decided not just to do the show, but to televise it. People just couldn't resist seeing a James Brown concert. Between that and Brown's calls for calm, Boston avoided a lot of the rioting that happened in other parts of the country. He then flew to my hometown of Washington, D.C. to speak on the radio and meet with President Lyndon Johnson. Soon thereafter, he recorded the songs Licking Stick, Licking Stick and Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. In 1970, Maceo Parker left Brown to play with George Clinton's Parliament Funkadelic and many of his fellow band members left with him. Undeterred, Brown hired the Pace Setters, eight teenagers from Cincinnati, to take their place. The sound switched from horns to guitars, and the name switched from the famous Flames to the New Breed, and then simply the JBs. With this new blood, they went on a recording spree, releasing Sex Machine, Superbad, Soul Power, and many others. Soon, Brown signed on with Polydor Records and cut 10 top 10 R&B hits in a row. 20 years after Please Please Please, Brown was releasing hits like Body Heat and Get Up Off of That Thing. He just kept touring and kept making hits. In 1974, he traveled to Africa to play at the Rumble in the Jungle fight between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. He also performed at the inauguration of the president of Gabon. In the 1980s, Brown appeared in the Blues Brothers and in Rocky IV. His song from the Rocky IV soundtrack, Living in America, reached the top five. And the night it did, Brown was inducted as a charter member into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Sadly, in 1988, things took a downswing for James Brown. He got hooked on PCP. His wife reported him for domestic abuse. He waved guns around in public and led police on a high-speed chase. He went to jail for three years. He had similar episodes in 1998 and 2004. Each time he was released, though, he went right back to touring. In 1992, James Brown received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. In 2003, he received the same honor from both the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in my hometown of Washington, D.C., and from BET. When Michael Jackson presented the BET Award to him, he called Brown his greatest influence. In late 2006, Brown traveled from his home in Beach Island, South Carolina, to Atlanta, where, on Christmas morning, the godfather of soul passed away at the age of 73. James Brown was an R&B icon the creator of funk, and a massive influence on soul, pop, and hip-hop music. 
His outfits and his dance moves were legendary. His influences on culture and politics were profound, and his music was nothing short of groundbreaking. In all, he had 116 singles on Billboard's Hot 100 charts. In an interview, he once said, Where I grew up, there was no way out, no avenue of escape. You had to make a way. Mine was to create James Brown. Just shy of Ronald McNair's seventh birthday, the Russians launched the satellite Sputnik into orbit. His childhood friends remember him just standing on the playground, staring up at the sky. That's all Ronald ever talked about, one remembered. Sputnik, Sputnik, Sputnik. We got tired of it. Little Ronald was so fascinated by science and space that his friends nicknamed him Gizmo. The idea of traveling to space should have seemed pretty far-fetched to anyone growing up in the 1950s, but even more so to a black kid growing up in the small, segregated town of Lake City, South Carolina. But Ronald always just saw the world differently. In the summer of 1959, when Ronald was eight, he decided he needed some books to read. Unbeknownst to his family, he wandered down to the nearest public library, about a mile from his house. When he brought his books to the counter, the librarian refused to check them out. She tried to explain to Ronald that this library was for whites only. He didn't seem to understand and refused to leave without his books. She threatened to call the police, to which he simply responded, I'll wait. She called the police and his mother. Both arrived shortly. It was a small town. The cop looked at the librarian and said, why don't you just give him the books? His mother promised he would take good care of them, and Ronald got his books. Even at eight years old, Ronald McNair was hungry for knowledge, and he wasn't going to let anyone, or anything, stand in the way of his learning. Ronald attended segregated Carver High School, where he lettered in baseball, basketball, and football, and played the saxophone in the school band. In 1967, he graduated valedictorian of his class. He was also named a presidential scholar. Ronald went to North Carolina A&T in Greensboro, a school we've come across several times in past episodes. It was where the A&T Four held their Woolworth sit-in and where Peanut Johnson got her nursing degree. He graduated in 1971 with a Bachelor of Science degree in Engineering Physics and Magna Cum Laude honors. He went on to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he studied physics. His area of expertise was in lasers, which I find particularly appropriate, since the science of lasers relies heavily on the research of fellow South Carolinian Charles Towns. When Ronald was working on his dissertation, he had a huge setback when two years of his research notes on specialized laser physics were stolen. He persevered, making up the research in less than a year. He graduated from MIT with a PhD in physics in 1976, and his work with lasers received national recognition. The year he graduated from MIT, 
he married Cheryl Moore, and they would have two children together, Reginald in 1982 and Joy in 1984. Ronald went to work as a staff physicist at Hughes Research Lab in Malibu, California. While there, he developed lasers for isotope separation and worked on satellite-to-satellite communication. The boy who had stared up at the sky looking for a satellite had grown into a man working on one. Just so you don't think of Ronald as just a physicist, though, he was also a fifth-degree black belt in karate. He was an avid runner and enjoyed football and boxing, playing cards, and cooking. And that saxophone he picked up as a kid, he still played as an adult. Life was pretty good for Ronald McNair in the mid-1970s. And then, it got better. While working at Hughes, Ronald learned that NASA was recruiting astronaut Class 8 to man its new space shuttle program. Unlike previous classes, which accepted only pilots, Class 8 would also be looking for mission specialists, people with serious backgrounds in science. To fill these positions, though, you not only had to be smart, but in excellent physical shape as well. Ronald realized his entire life had led him to that point. Out of 10,000 applicants, NASA accepted 35. Ronald McNair was one of them. From that group of 35, NASA accomplished some pretty amazing firsts. Sally Ride became the first American woman in space. Guion Bluford, my fellow Penn Stater, became the first African American in space. Judith Resnick was the first Jewish American in space, and Ellison Onizuka, the first Asian American. Anna Fisher was the first mother in space, and many others. It was an incredible group of people, and Ronald McNair was ecstatic to be a part of it. McNair became the second African-American in space when he lifted off aboard the Space Shuttle Challenger on February 3, 1984. Mission STS-41B orbited the Earth 128 times in its nine days in space, deploying two satellites and performing the first untethered spacewalk. This mission was also the first to land at its launch site at Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Previous shuttle missions had landed in California, In total, McNair and his fellow astronauts logged 191 hours in space on this mission. The following year, Ronald McNair was selected for his next shuttle mission aboard Challenger, STS-51L, which would launch January 28, 1986. It was a cold morning in Florida, colder than usual, with temperatures dipping below freezing. The launch never should have happened. Several parts, most notably the O-rings, had never been tested at temperatures that low. But the launch had already been pushed back several days. Plus, the whole country was watching. In addition to the crew, this mission had a very special guest star on board, Krista McAuliffe, who was going to be the first teacher in space. She was scheduled to teach two lessons from space and help capture the imagination of a whole new generation of children my generation. I was 10 years old. Despite a number of warnings, Challenger was cleared to launch at 11.38 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just 73 seconds after liftoff, Challenger broke apart and disintegrated over the Atlantic Ocean. The cause was later determined as the failure of the O-rings due to the unusually cold temperature. All seven crew, including McAuliffe and Ronald McNair, were killed in the accident. I remember that day, 
I think we all do. The seven crew members of the Space Shuttle Challenger were posthumously awarded the Congressional Space Medal in 2004. Each also had a crater named in their honor in the Apollo Basin on the moon. The challenger Colez mountain range has also been named for them. Those mountains are on the surface of Pluto. And, in 1987, Charles Schmidt painted a beautiful portrait of them on the wall of the United States Capitol building in my hometown of Washington, D.C. Ronald McNair has also been memorialized in many places. More than 20 schools have been named after him, as has the engineering building at North Carolina A&T. At MIT, the McNair Building houses the Institute for Astrophysics and Space Research. Oh, and remember that library back in Lake City that refused to loan him books when he was eight years old? That building is now named after him too. Of all the people who have ever come out of the state of South Carolina, Ronald McNair, perhaps more than anyone, has certainly earned his place among the stars. That's it for the podcast this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review the show. Next time, I'll be coming to you from the volunteer state, Tennessee, and I'm really looking forward to it. To find out more about me or my slow journey around the United States, check out my website, www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles, the number two, go before I sleep.com. Follow me on Facebook, on Twitter at miles to go tweet, and on Instagram at miles to go before I sleep, all using the number two for me and you. Many thanks to our musical guest this week, legendary Piedmont blues artist Dr. Mac Arnold, and his band Plateful of Blues. You should definitely check out his music on iTunes, and to find out more about Mac, check out his website, macarnold.com. Background music, as always, comes from Kevin McLeod over at IncompTechMusic.com and special effects from the great folks at FreeSFX.com. Our theme music from another legendary blues man, Memphis Slim. I hope you're all getting out and doing some travel of your own. I'd love to run into you out there somewhere. Speaking of which, it's time for me to be moving on. So until next time, I am your host, Mike Harding, and this is American Anthology. Keep your eyes on the road, your hands on the wheel, and your headlights pointed towards your next adventure. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every.